If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn to Romans chapter 13. We're moving on now to the second half of Romans 13. Still firmly in the so what section of Paul's letter to the Romans. The first 11 chapters, Paul gives us the what of the gospel. In the last five chapters, 12 through 16, he gives us the so what of the gospel. In light of the truths of the gospel, how ought we to live now? What difference ought those truths to make on our everyday lives? And so he begins dealing with lots of practical things in this section. The last three weeks we were in the first seven verses of this chapter. and We mentioned that on the surface those verses dealing with our relationship and how we relate to civil government seem out of place. And the reason is because chapter 12 ended with Paul talking about love, and now he revisits the, the theme of love in verse 8 of chapter 13. So follow along. We're going to read verses 8 through 10 this morning of Romans chapter 13 out of God's word. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, Love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the privilege, the joy of gathering each week with your people to worship you. We thank you for the spirit of worship that is in this room as we sang those songs and we contemplated on your love for us. Lord, now teach us how to love. By your Spirit, teach us how to love. Teach us how to love you, how to love one another, and Lord, how to love this world and all the settings in which we find ourselves. Teach us how to love. Fuel us to love with an overwhelming sense of the grace that you have extended to us in Christ. Teach us from your word not just to know what it is to love, but to be compelled to love because of the gospel. Speak to us this morning from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins verse 8 by saying, Owe no one anything. So what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, we, we recognize the word owe. Paul, this is a carryover from verse 7, the immediate prior verse, where Paul said in, pers- in verse 7, pay to everyone what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, he says, owe no one anything. Now, what does Paul mean by that? 
is Paul telling us that we are to never find ourselves in a position where we owe something to anyone? Well, it can't mean that because of the verse we just read. It it, it categorically can't mean that because verse 7 tells us that when we do owe someone, someone something, that we are to pay it back, that we are to pay what we owe to them. The command there in verse 7 to pay what we owe presumes that we will find ourselves at times in situations where we owe something to someone, and when we do, we are to pay what we owe. Some have tried to use this verse to put together an entire Christian ethic to say that the Bible prohibits debt of any kind, that it is a sin to borrow money, but you can only arrive at that conclusion if you ignore the rest of the Bible. In several places, the Bible talks about lending. The Bible gives directions to believers on how they are to lend. Why would the Bible tell us how we are to lend if we're not to borrow? So the Bible talks a lot about lending and borrowing, but in none of those places does the Bible ever label that a sin. It just doesn't. Now, it includes lots of warnings that we're to be very, very careful about debt because it can very quickly create a master-servant relationship that is very unhealthy to anyone, including a believer. And it includes lots of teaching about when we borrow, we are only to do so with a very clear intent and plan to pay that debt back. To borrow without a plan or without an intent to repay that debt back is a sin. And it's not glorifying to God. And so part of the so what of the gospel here is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we will pay our debts, that we'll pay back every single penny that we owe to whomever we owe it. That's what verse 7 taught us last week. But Paul is not saying here in verse 8 that we're never to borrow, that you can't have any debt. So what is he saying? Well, we have to be clear on what the focus here is in verse 8 and in this passage. The focus is not on debt, but on love. That's what the focus is. He says here, owe no one anything except to love one another. Again, Paul is returning to this primary theme that he laid out in great detail back in chapter 12. In verse 9 of chapter 12, he kind of laid the groundwork and he says, let your love be genuine or without hypocrisy, without dissimulation. Let your love be real and authentic. And then he spent the rest of chapter 12 listing several ways in which we are to show that our love actually is real, that it is genuine and without hypocrisy. Now Paul returns to that same idea of love here in verse 13 of chapter eight, of, of chapter verse 8 of chapter 13. So the whole focus of verse 8 here and the whole focus of these three verses that we're dealing with this morning, 8, 9, and 10, it is not debt. The focus is love. So he's not using the idea of love to teach us something about debt. That's not the structure of this sentence. Instead, he's using the idea of debt to teach us something about love. When Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other, he's telling us two things. First of all, he's telling us with all of of our other debts, we are to work hard 
in order to pay them back, in order to pay those debts off. Why? So that we won't remain in a position indefinitely where we are owing something to another person. We're to pay our debts. Owe no one anything. Pay off those credit cards. Pay off those student loans. Pay off those car loans, whatever it is. But the second thing that he's telling us here is that no matter what we do, we will always have a debt of love to others. We'll always have that debt. So the first point of this passage, first point of the sermon, is that we owe a debt of love to others. We owe a debt of love to others. And and this debt of love, Paul says, is different from every other debt that we have in this life. With every other debt, after you've finished paying it, you're done paying it. You you don't continue paying that, right? After, after, After you finish paying off the note, you don't continue paying the note out of the kindness of your heart. You're done paying it. You're pay, you've paid it off. We talked last week in, in verses 5 through 7 about Paul's injunction to pay our taxes. That's what he dealt with in that passage last week. All of us who are citizens of this country, all of us who are citizens of this state, we owe taxes. And we hope this time of year, as we're gathering together our documents, we hope that, that what has been withheld, what our employer has withheld from our income, is going to cover the debt that we have for our taxes. And if it does, great. But if it doesn't, then we have to pay more taxes because we owe more than we have paid. But the point is, that after you've paid all, your ta- all of your taxes, then that debt is satisfied. You don't continue to pay taxes to Uncle Sam after you've returned your, uh, turned back in your income tax return and you've written all of your checks for your taxes. You don't continue to do that, right? Does anybody continue to pay taxes after they've paid their, okay. All right, good. I was hoping I wasn't doing the wrong thing here. We don't continue paying that after it's done. It's done. Same is true with paying off a car note. When you're finished paying off a car loan, if you had a car loan and you're paying on that for a few years, you get to the end of that note, you write that final check, and what a joy that is, right? You, you write out that, that, that final payment to the bank, and the bank sends you the title to that car, and now you own the car. But you don't keep paying the bank, right? Same with our mortgages. Most of us have like a 30-year mortgage, and, and it's a 30-year mortgage because the, the hope is at the end of those 30 years, if you've been paying against your mortgage, you've been paying on time, at the end of 30 years, the bank will send you a note saying this is the deed to your property. You actually own it. You don't continue paying the bank after the bank has given you the deed to your property. That's the whole point of all of our debts, that when we, are, when we have satisfied that debt, we no longer pay it. But our debt of love is completely different. Our debt of love is never satisfied. It's never paid in full. No matter what we do, we will always continue to have this debt of love. I actually really like the way the New International Version puts the first half of verse 8. It it, it translates it this way. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. That's what the debt of love is. It's a continuing debt. We don't pay it off like any of other debts. We pay other debts with one goal, 
the goal of paying all of our other debts is to finish paying them. But we don't love with the goal of finishing loving. Imagine if we love that way in our marriages, right? The husband, the husband says, all right, babe, uh, today I want to be finished loving you at 5 o'clock. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you really well from 8 a.m. to noon, and I'm going to taper off from noon to 5. But at 5 o'clock, I'm done. I'm, I'm done loving. We'll be finished with that. I've told you that I've loved you. I've loved you well all day long, but at 5 o'clock, I'm done loving. What's going to happen to that husband? He's going to learn to love the couch, right? That's not how we love. The debt of love is never finished. It's a debt that can never be paid off. John Murray said that by its very nature... Love is a duty which, when discharged, is never discharged. It never goes away. Love is a debt that continues. Now, the question for us is, to whom do we owe this debt? To whom is Paul referring when he says we owe a debt of love? We owe a debt of love to whom? Do we owe a debt of love to God? Most assuredly, of course we do. We owe a tremendous debt of love to God. A lot of the hymns and songs that we sing are, are an attempt to try to show us our great debt of love to God. One that we just sang this morning, oh, how marvelous, how wonderful, and so my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. What is it trying to do? It's trying to show us our great debt of love. Isaac Watts in the familiar hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the last stanza of that hymn says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The, the Isaac Watts is trying to say, listen, the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of amazing grace and love that he has shown to us in Christ is so great that if I were to try to pay it off, and the, and the point is that we, we're not to try to pay it off, we can never pay it off. That's not the reason why we love God in return. That's not the reason why we serve him and worship him. We serve him because we've been overwhelmed by grace. But were we to try to give a gift to repay God, the whole realm of nature would be far too small a gift. That kind of love that's so amazing and so divine demands, demands all of who I am, my soul, my life, my all. So it's certainly true that we owe a tremendous debt of love to God that we can never pay off. But that's, that's not the debt of love that Paul is talking about here in chapter 13. Well, maybe he's talking about the debt of love that we owe to one another in the body of Christ, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to one another in the church, because it is certainly true that we owe a debt of love to one another as believers and followers of Jesus, other Christians. In fact, the whole story of Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about the end, he, he tells this parable, this story about how when that comes, he's going he's gonna to call all people to himself, and he's going to separate the people. He's going to put one group of people on, the, on one side, he's going to call them sheep, and another group of people on the other side, and he's going to call them goats. And if you remember the, the story, you want to be a sheep in this story, because he looks at the sheep, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your father's rest, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was sick and in prison, you visited me and comforted me and helped me. And the sheep are going to say, Lord, when, we, when did we ever do that to you? And Jesus answers them, when you did these things to the least of my brethren, my brothers, you did it to me. 
And then he's going to look at the goats. He's going to say, hey, you, you didn't feed me. You didn't give me drink. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me in prison and, and help me and comfort me. And they're going to say, well, Lord, when did we ever not do those things for you? And Jesus will say to them, whenever you didn't do it, to the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it to me. Paul is ta- uh, Jesus is talking very specifically in that parable about loving other Christians, other believers, the brethren of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a debt of love that we owe to other believers. But although that is very true and very, very biblical, that specifically is not the debt of love that Paul is talking about here in chapter 13, verse 8. Paul is talking here, church, about the debt of love that we owe to every single person in our lives. And every person that God brings across our paths. You and I owe a debt of love to all our neighbors. And we remember from Jesus that the word neighbors doesn't just refer to the people who physically live on either side of us. Because in the Gospels, when Jesus told this parable in response to this lawyer who asked him a question, who is my neighbor? And he answers by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. And we remember that in that story, the Samaritans were the sworn enemy of the Jews. They didn't like one another another, very much. They were enemies of one another. And so our neighbors include, our neighbors that we are to love include even those who are our enemies, those that we really don't like. We owe a debt of love even to them. So anyone with whom you have contact is your neighbor, and you have a debt of love to them. Even those that you don't necessarily like, everyone in every circle of your life, even the folks with whom, with whom you only have a, a, a brief encounter as God brings them across your path. They are your neighbor, and you owe them a debt of love. So if you're a student, you owe a debt of love to your fellow students, and not just the ones that are your friends, not just the ones that you like to sit next to in the cafeteria at lunchtime, but all of the students in your school. Every student that you run into in the hallways of your school, you owe a debt of love to them. If you work in an office, you have a debt of love to every single one of your coworkers, not just the ones you like to go to lunch with, not just the ones that you get along with, but all of your coworkers, you owe them a debt of love. If you go out to eat today after lunch, you owe a debt of love to that waitress who's going to serve you your meal. What about if you're going to buy a car? What about if you're going to buy a used car? Do you owe a debt of love to even the used car salesman? Hope and pray there's no used car salesman in here. But if, you, if there are, you will be pleased to know that you too are our neighbor. Right? According to Jesus' definition of the word neighbor... Even the used car salesman is our neighbor. So to what degree do we owe a debt of love even to him, even in that transaction? 
It also means that we owe a debt of love to the homeless guy who asked for help. We owe a debt of love to the third roofing guy of the week who comes by and asks to give an estimate about replacing the roof. We owe a debt of love to that woman who walks her dog in front of your house and doesn't pick up what should be picked up. We owe a debt of love even to her and the dog. Paul's point is that we never pay off this debt. We're always paying it, but it's never paid off. Early church father Origen once said, the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we pay every day and forever owe. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Why? For the, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul tells us two things. First of all, he tells us in this passage that we owe a debt of love to others. Everybody. We owe, all of us as believers in Christ, we owe a debt of love to everyone that God puts, brings across our path. Secondly, he tells us that love fulfills the law. Loving others, he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So loving others is fulfilling the law. And this, and this recalls to mind what Jesus said in Matthew 22 when someone said, what, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. And then he says, and there's a second that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes by saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, love is a fulfillment of the law. And, and, and so you can summarize all of the law in two ways. Love God and love your neighbor. And so that's what Paul says. And Paul even goes on in this passage to mention some of the law itself. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What does this mean for us? This means that when we break these commandments, and specifically he's talking here about the second table of the law, those commandments that, uh, that deal with our relationship to our fellow man, when we break those commandments, we are not loving our neighbor. Our law-breaking is not just a personal struggle that is affecting only us. We have an enemy who would love to convince us that that is the case, but that is not the case. Our breaking of God's commands are, are not just affecting us. They're affecting many others. You can think of it this way. When you look at those commands, take the first one in verse 9 as an example. You can do it with all of them. But just take the first one that he lists. Do not commit adultery. And then ask yourself, how many people do I need to stop loving in order to break that commandment? Who are, who are the people that I have to, if, if I'm going to break that commandment, do not commit adultery, who are the people that I need to stop loving in order to do that? 
The first most obvious one is my wife. I would need to stop loving my wife in order to break that commandment. But, but not just my current wife, because if I'm not married, adultery includes not just sleeping with someone who's not my current wife. It's sleeping with anyone outside the bonds of marriage. So it would include premarital sex, sleeping with someone who's not currently your spouse. And so if I'm not married, then if I'm going to break this commandment, do not commit adultery, then I also have to stop loving my future wife, my future spouse. And that's true. Premarital sex is me putting myself and, and, and my current desires above honoring my future spouse. It's saying what I want right now is more important than honoring and loving my future spouse. I also have to stop loving my sons if I'm going to break that commandment because breaking that commandment runs the very high risk of hurting and damaging them. But if I break that commandment, then I'm saying that I'm more important than you. And what I want goes above your well-being, even if it means hurting you. And that's incredibly unloving. I also have to stop loving their future wives because of the example, the poor example that it would set for how you should treat your wife. I would also have to stop loving the other person in this very hypothetical example, by the way. But in this hypothetical example, if I'm, if I'm uh, tempted to violate and break that commandment of, of not committing adultery, I would have to stop loving the other person with whom I'd be breaking that commandment. Because it is not loving to them. There, there's no self-sacrificial act in committing adultery. Instead, it is a very self-serving act. It would not be self-sacrificing to commit that act. But instead, it would be using that person as a plaything, as a means of, of satisfying some very selfish, physical, or emotional need that I think I might have. Especially as a Christian especially as a believer. You can't commit that act and then look that person in the eyes and ask them where they stand with Christ. You can't do that. And so I have to not love that person. In fact, you could, you could even extend that and say, I would have to stop loving every woman in the world, especially in, as we consider what pornography does to our minds and our hearts and how our culture views women because of it. I need to stop loving every single woman in the world and every single woman who has ever lived and will ever live if I'm going to commit the act of adultery. And we, we could do this with, with all of these commands. Who, who do I need to stop loving if I'm going to murder? Who, who do I need to stop loving if I'm going to steal? If, if I'm going to covet I'm still amazed, by the way, that covet makes the top 10 list, right? Aren't you? I mean, if you, were, if you were to make a top 10 list of laws on which you're going to build a country, say, for example, your, your, your top 10 list, you're, you're starting a country and you're going to make those 10 lists, would, would coveting make the top 10? It wouldn't for me, but it does for God. Because with God, what's, what's in the heart, what's going on in here is what matters. That's what's important. 
And when we covet, not only are we saying, I deserve that, but there's a part of it that's, that's also saying, you don't deserve it, at least not as much as I do. And so if I'm coveting your pickup truck, which I'm prone to do, not only am I saying I deserve that, but I'm, there's part of me that's saying I deserve it more than you. And that's unloving. Cain was guilty of the sin of coveting, right? Cain coveted the favor that God had shown his brother Abel. And it ended up with Cain being very unloving towards his brother so when we break these commandments, we're, we're not loving others. We're not loving our neighbors. Just like when we break any of the first table of the law, the first four commandments, same is true there. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image and worship it. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, and you shall keep the Sabbath holy. When we break any of those commands that deal with our relationship with God, that it is not loving God in the same way when we break any of the second table, some of which Paul uh, explicitly describes here in verse 9, when we break any of those commands dealing with our relationship with other people, honor your mother or father, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, then we are not loving others. But the converse is also true. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, when we love our neighbors as we should, and we are, as Paul says, we are fulfilling the law. And by, by the way, when Paul says that's a fulfillment of the law, he uses that word on purpose. Fulfilling the law is more robust, robust than obeying the law. He, he says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, not just obeyed it. We, we know that we can follow the letter of the law without following the spirit of the law, without our heart really being in it. Anyone who's ever had a child knows that that is certainly the case for children, that they know how to follow the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. They know how to follow the letter of the law while remaining rebellious on the inside, right? But they don't have a corner on that market. We as adults know how to do that as well. And when we do, we're like the Pharisees. We're just like the Pharisees who elevate the letter of the law and ignore many times the spirit of the law and totally miss it. The Pharisees had the letter of the law down pat. I mean, they had it, they taught it, they lived it. But they often missed the spirit of the law, which was what? Love God and love your neighbor. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had all those but I tell you's, right? The Pharisees, for example, were telling people, hey, the law says don't murder, and it did, and they followed the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. What was the intent behind do not murder? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said, but I tell you, not just don't murder, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Jesus wasn't changing the law. Jesus wasn't abrogating the law. He's saying, listen, the fulfillment of the law is the spirit of the law, which it was originally intended, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Not just don't murder. The heart behind that was love your neighbor as yourself. 
Same with the one that we've already talked about. Do not commit adultery. The Pharisees were, were saying, don't commit adultery. And that was the letter of the law. And they followed the letter of the law. But they missed the spirit of the law behind that, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent on his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Paul says, the one who loves another has not just obeyed the law, but he's fulfilled the law. But note also that neither does Paul say that love replaces the law. Love Loving others fulfills the law, but it doesn't replace the law. Primarily because this side of the grave, we're never going to love others perfectly. We're we're never going to love one another with with perfection. And so we need the law. We, we, We must have these commandments. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to say, hey, love your neighbor But he must also give us the law and give us the commandments as a guide, as a warning to show us how utterly we fail at the letter and the spirit of the law. Show us how dark our hearts really are sometimes and how we need to run to Jesus for rescue from that. You know, another note before we move on here is it's a shame that some have taken what Paul says here and what Jesus says, love your neighbor as, a, as yourself, that some have taken that and twisted that and turned it into some kind of self-therapeutic nonsense that we have to learn how to love ourselves before we can love other people. That if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, then I need to learn how to love myself. And so the counsel that you often hear in this regard is um, you know, you're no good to, your, to, to others until you really learn how to love yourself. And so you need to spend some time getting to know who you are and, and what makes you tick. And, and you need to learn how to love yourself. And, and then loving others will come so much more naturally to you. Now the Greek word for that counsel is hogwash. And it's <laughs> pronounced just like that. Um, clearly that's not a biblical way of thinking. This idea that we have to learn how to love ourselves before we can love others. I don't know anything that comes more naturally to sinful man than loving self. We come out of the womb knowing how to love ourselves. Our, our bent towards self-preservation is a means of loving self. The fact that you put on clothes today to make yourself look nice shows that you love yourself and you want to show that. We're all born with an inherent love for self. It's not something that we have to be taught or we have to figure out how to do. It comes naturally to us. Think about it. When's the last time you gave yourself the cold shoulder because of something that you said? You know, when's the last time you gave yourself the silent treatment because of something that you said or did? We just don't do that. When's the last time you assumed the worst about yourself because of something that you said offhandedly? Jonathan Edwards um, said, we often view our own sins with a judgment of charity, but we often view the sins of others with a judgment of sobriety or soberly and seriously. When we sin, yes, we know it's sin, but we, we also are very aware of, of all of the extenuating circumstances surrounding our own sin, right? We know that, man, we were, well, we were tired, we were hungry, or 
we were just having a really bad day or somebody had, had hurt us, somebody had offended us or whatever the case. We, we, we are very aware, I am very aware of all of the circumstances surrounding the reasons why I have sinned in every sin that I've ever committed. Often when we apologize for sinning against others, this comes out. We say, I'm, I'm sorry for saying what I said, but what I said is in response to what you said. So I'm going to own my sin, but I want to make sure that you know that if you had not said what you said, I would not have said what I said. So I'm sorry for that. And we're just like Adam in that respect, aren't we? We blame others instead of taking responsibility. We blame others, and we tend to extend charity to ourselves because of the circumstantial reasons that we know surrounding our sin. But isn't it amazing how we are often so blind to those very same circumstantial reasons for the sins of others? When we sin, we extend charity. When others sin, we often judge it soberly and seriously without an ounce of grace. When we sin, it's because we're, 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 we're hungry uh, we're, we're tired, somebody had done something to, to mess us up and offend us, there's always a reason. But when somebody else sins, it is because their mouths are an open grave, it is because we know that, that, that what they say and what they do comes from that dark place called a sin-stained heart, and there is no excuse. So we don't want to hear about the fact that you were tired or you were hungry or, or you had had a bad day because we know that no matter what the circumstances were, you could have acted more like Jesus in that situation. That's what we think. Why do we do that? Why, why do we view, as, as Jonathan Edwards says, why do we view our own sins with a judgment of charity but the sins of others with a judgment of sobriety? We do that because what comes naturally to ourselves to us is loving ourselves and what is unnatural to us is loving others and so we don't need to learn how to love ourselves in order to love others we should reject that what what Paul is telling us here when he says love your neighbor as yourself he's telling us that we ought to love others in the in the same way and in this to the same degree that we naturally and instinctively love ourselves in fact Part of the very meaning of the word love carries with it an element of self-sacrifice. And you can't love yourself and sacrifice yourself at the same time. And so what would really be loving would be for us to reverse that. We should extend charity to others when they sin. And we should think very soberly about our own sins. So church, we owe a great debt of love to every single person in our lives to every person that God brings across our paths. And that, and that debt is never paid off. It continues over and over and over, and it never goes away. And we make payments against that debt by loving others, by lowering self and sacrificing self and elevating others and putting their needs above our own, by caring for them, by meeting their needs. And if they don't know Jesus, by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And as we do these things, Paul says we are fulfilling the law. So how can we hope to do this? How, how can we even hope to love others in a way that fulfills the law of God. One commentator from generations ago at the end of his commentary on this section of Romans included a list of questions 
with the, with the hope of prompting us to a place of self-examination to ask ourselves, are we genuinely loving others? And so I want to read through these questions, and they're very convicting, uh, but I want you to think through them and listen to them. Perhaps it would be beneficial to unpack some of these in your base group later t- today or tonight. But let me just read through them. And again, the, the, the intent behind this is to determine, am I loving others? Is, it, is, your, is your love to man genuine? Will it bear the test found in the second table of the law? Are you guilty of sinful anger, of hatred, of envy, the desire to revenge, excessive passions, distracting cares? sinful indulgences do you hate peevish and provoking words are your thoughts feelings and actions kind and meek and gentle and charitable and courteous and forgiving do you cherish all chaste and pure thoughts and purposes and imaginations are your actions virtuous is your apparel modest is your behavior light or impudent Do you abhor all that is unchaste in songs, books, pictures, and thoughts? They didn't have movies at the time or TV, so we could add that. Do you practice oppression, usury, lawsuits, deception? Is your calling lawful? In other words, what you do as a vocation, is it lawful? Ought you not to make restitution in some case? Do you promote truth and the good name of all men as you can? Do you hate reviling, scoffing, whispering flatteries, slander, exaggeration? Do you grieve at the good name of any lost? Do you needlessly mention the fault of any? Do you love to show kindness to all? Are you fair at making bargains? Do you plead your rank, condition, or former standing as a reason why you should not love your poor neighbor? As we read through that list of questions, it's, it's kind of like reading the law, isn't it? It's sobering. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. How can we possibly hope to love that way? And, and, and not just... How can we hope to love that way? But how can we hope to love that way to those who are unloving to us? Maybe you're a parent who's trying to love their son or daughter and it's not being reciprocated. Maybe you're a wife and your husband is not loving to you any longer. How do you continue to love him in these ways? Maybe you're a husband whose wife doesn't respect you anymore. How can you possibly continue to be self-sacrificial in your love to her? Maybe you're experiencing persecution or ridicule because of your faith in Jesus Christ. How can you hope to continue to love even that person who is treating you in that way? How? Only by looking to the one who was beaten and spit upon and reviled and nailed to a wooden cross, and yet he continued to love those who so treated him. See, we must see this 
injunction from the Apostle Paul to continue to pay against our debt of love by loving the people that God has placed in our lives. We must see that injunction against the backdrop of the gospel. Remember what Paul said at the outset of this so what section of Paul's letter. He said in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are we going to not be conformed to the pattern of this world? How are we going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? How are we going to continue to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, even in things like self-sacrificial love, even in the face of persecution and an unloving spirit in return? In light of the mercies of God. In light of the mercies of God that God has shown to sinners like us in sending Jesus to live for us and to die in our place so that by faith in him we might be made new and given a new spirit, a new heart, a new hope, and a new home. We've mentioned it often since we've made the turn from chapter 11 to chapter 12 and we're going to continue to go back to this as, as we walk through the rest of this letter. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to live the perfect life that we could never live so we could never earn righteousness before God. He lived that perfectly righteous life and then he died in our place so that by faith in him, he takes our sins, our sin debt, and we are given his righteousness so that we're made acceptable to God. That good news, the good news of Jesus Christ is what, first of all, enables us to love this way. We want to know how to love in an impossible way with impossible people. It is because God has given us a new heart. We can't love out of the heart that we're born with in this way. We can only love this way out of the heart that God gives us, this this new heart, this new spirit as he has made us a new creation. But it also fuels us. It fuels us to be able to, to love in this way because now we desire to do this. Not not not. Not because we want to pay God back for this. We know that we could never pay God back. But, but we are fueled by the amazing love and grace that he has shown to us, sinners, rebels against him. We are fueled by that. We want to see him glorified in our lives and specifically through loving others. But also, it's our example. It's our example of what this kind of love looks like. As we look to Jesus, specifically as we look to Jesus on the cross, and we see the world's greatest demonstration of self-sacrificial love. So let us look to the cross, church, in this endeavor. So that we might be transformed into genuinely loving people for God's glory. Let's pray. As you're bowing your head and closing your eyes, seeking to meet with God, if you're here this morning and you've, you've never placed your hope and your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ alone,
as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that you and I and every person in this room deserves because of our disobedience to God, because of our rebellion against God. If, if, if you're placing your hope in your ability to be good, maybe even in your ability to try to love others in the right way or attend church enough, that is hopeless. Your heart is stained unchangeably with your sin. And no amount of doing good and trying to be right is ever going to change that. That's why Jesus came. To live that perfect life that you didn't, I don't, nobody else in here does and couldn't. To live the perfect life for us and then to die on a cross in our place. So will you continue to trust in yourself to try to make yourself right before God or will you surrender to him right now? It's not about walking an aisle. It's not by checking a card. It's not by raising your hand. It's not by getting dunked. It's by you and that chair where you are right now surrendering to Christ and telling him, Lord, I cannot save myself. But I see that you have sent Jesus the redeemer of the world, to rescue me. And I place my faith and my hope in his finished work on the cross as my confident assurance that he has paid my debt to you and that his righteous life gets credited to me so that I'm acceptable before you. That's when he gives you a new heart. That's when he gives you a new life a new spirit that makes you a new creation so that you're able to love in this way. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I am going to ask you to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you place your faith in him? And Christian, brother, sister, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, let us cry out to God right now. God, would you help us? Would you teach us how to love? Perhaps in situations that I'm not even aware about in this room that are incredibly humanly impossible to love. Would you give us a greater awareness of the love that you've extended to us in Jesus? May you enable us to love out of that new heart that you have given to us. And God, may you be glorified as we seek to love our neighbor as ourself and so fulfill the law. Be glorified through us individually and corporately as the church as we seek to do this by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.